Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today, we conclude our series on the drug development process by exploring the patient perspective on clinical trials. Kim Nye is a mother of four and the president and co-founder of the TESS Research Foundation, a nonprofit that aims to find better treatment options and ultimately a cure for SLC13A5 deficiency. Two of Kim's children began having seizures shortly after birth and were later diagnosed with the SLC13A5 deficiency, a severe form of epilepsy. Over the years, Kim has seen her children endure hundreds of thousands of seizures, numerous treatment options, and two clinical trials. Kim is here to share her experiences with clinical trials and her advice to other parents who may be interested in enrolling their children in a trial. Kim, thank you so much for joining us to chat today. Our last few episodes, we've been speaking with scientists, and so I am so thrilled today to be able to pick your brain as the mother who has had several children go through clinical trials so we can actually educate our listeners on what the patient experience looks like. But before we get to that, I want to learn a little more about your family and specifically your two children who have been enlisted in these clinical trials. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here today. I'm a big fan of yours and of Cure, so it's exciting to, to be here and be able to share our story. Um, so I have four children, but the two children we're going to be talking with about today are Tessa and Colton. Um, so I'll start with Tessa. Uh, she is now um, 17. She turned 17 this month, which is like mind-blowing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, my husband and I had her when we were graduate students living in England, uh, and we thought we were having just a healthy little girl. But when she was one day old, she started seizing uncontrollably. And at first, doctors thought that she would be okay, maybe grow out of the seizures. Um, But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And by kindergarten, she was having hundreds of seizures a day. Um, Tessa's development was significantly impaired, which is not surprising. If you're busy having hundreds of seizures a day, it's hard to learn how to do the things that more typical kids do. At six, she had maybe a few words and she was really unsteady on um, her feet. And she was in like a moderate to severe special day uh, school classroom. So we spent a decade trying to figure out what was causing Tessa's epilepsy. So we knew she had a diagnosis of epilepsy, but we didn't know really what was causing the seizures, kind of like the diagnosis behind the diagnosis, right? And so we we really looked hard. (laughs) For a decade, you know, we could see on an EEG that she was having seizures, but everything else about her looked really normal, except the kid herself, right? She had a normal MRI, a lot of normal tests, but she she was just seizing and clearly not a typical kid. So fast forward to when Tessa was nine, almost 10, um, I gave birth to my fourth child and it was a little boy and his name is Colton. Um, And just like his big sister, he looked healthy at birth. And then um, when he was less than a day old, he started having seizures. Which I can't even imagine how shocking and devastating that must have been after uh, the doctors. My understanding is that they had led you to believe that this there was it was not a inherited or genetic cause for Tessa's seizures. Yeah, I, I have to say, you know, Tessa was born the same year that they finished sequencing the human genome, so she's kind of grown up with genetics. And there's just been such a big um, 
there's been so much progress in that space, right? But we were at the front end of it. So there was not a lot of association between um, epilepsy and uh, genetics. Um, I think people kind of knew they must be there, but you know the specific genes weren't quite known and the, and the list kind of grew and grew. And we had individual one-off uh, genetic tests, uh, but we were never able to find a genetic diagnosis. And because we have two little girls who are perfectly healthy, um, you know, the thought was, well, maybe this is just strike a lightning or you know, so many different genes or not everything is genetic, right? Like there are autoimmune problems or structural problems it could have been other things uh, but lo and behold when when Colton was born it like you said it was just the the lowest moment in my life because I knew you know even though this baby was only hours old I knew that he would likely never talk or live independently um, and it, it was devastating and it turns out we, we've talked with a genetics researcher uh, who was willing to go back and look at all this genetic testing that we had had and then add in Colton's genetic testing and his name's Matthew Bainbridge and he was able to find a typo in a gene and that gene is SLC13A5 um, and it's a recessive uh, disorder meaning my husband and I each carry a typo and Tessa and Colton were just unlucky enough to inherit both copies of the gene that have a typo in it. I love the way that you phrase that, that the gene had a typo because our genetic code is this like entire library full of books and there is one typo in one word and you end up with a child who's having hundreds of seizures a day. It's, it's kind of unbelievable. It is. And we all have typos and some typos cause no problems at all. But this, you know, this gene, SLC13A5, is responsible for something called citrate transport. And so my kids can't transport citrate and um, because of this typo. And citrate, transporting citrate seems to be one of those, you know, fundamental building blocks or uh, one of those sentences that you really need in that really long book and you need it to be read correctly. Um, and so it, it is mind blowing to just think that such a small thing can have such big consequences in terms of their health and our family's life. Absolutely. Now I want to backtrack a little bit because I believe that you actually had enrolled Tessa in her first clinical study before you ever even had the genetic diagnosis. So tell us a little bit about that first study, how you found out about it, what it involved. Um, give us give us the nitty gritty breakdown. Absolutely. So um, we first tried all available traditional treatments, right? So that with seizure medications, there are are about two dozen seizure medications that are pretty broadly used and you can use them in different combinations um, at different dosages and at different times in development. And we did all that. We also tried things like vagal nerve stimulators and we checked if she was a surgical candidate and we tried the ketogenic diet. We, we really had exhausted all possibilities. And so you know, rather, our choices were like give up and accept it um, or look for what's on the horizon. And so one of the things that started to come up um, was the talk about a medication called Epidiolex. And Epidiolex is, um, it's a pharmaceutical form of medical marijuana that um, just has something called CBD or cannabidiol in it. And so um, it was really our neurologist, Brenda Porter, who suggested the trial. Um, and we were so lucky because one of the trial sites was UCSF. And so we're in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so we're lucky to have Stanford Children's Hospital nearby and uh, UCSF nearby. And, and my kids have been treated at, at both institutions. And so we, we kind of knew the teams there. And, and so we thought, oh, good, let's enroll her in this trial. Turned out not to be that quick or easy. We, we had to wait about a year um, in order to get into that trial. I think that the problem was literally that the drug was manufactured in a different country and customs didn't want to let it into the country because it was like this unknown drug, right? So literally, our medication was stuck in customs. Um, 
And, and in the meantime, Tess is having hundreds of seizures a day. And honestly, she was worsening as she started to get closer to puberty. Um, and when you are watching your child seize, a year is an eternity. I, I can only imagine what that experience and frustration must have felt like for you. Yeah, you want to feel really sorry for me. In the middle of that year, I had my son Colton. So while we were waiting for this FNILX trial to start, our world crumbled around us. Um, and we were called to participate in the trial when Colton was just a few months old, maybe two or three months old. And we were literally just out of the hospital and starting to get him, you know, semi-stable at home. And suddenly, you know, our number is called and we have to make the decision uh, you know, this is terrible timing for our family, but this is the shot that Tessa has that might be, you know, something big. And um, there was an added urgency because I kept thinking, like, maybe what we find for Tessa will help Colton. Right. And uh, maybe now it's doubly important. And, you know, long story short, I think you get what happened. We enrolled in the trial um, and trials are not easy for families, you know, heading into the trial. You have to kind of figure out what baseline is, which means spending time in the hospital doing things like EEGs and blood tests and talking to the um, clinical trial team about your medical history and just making sure that, A, you're a candidate for the trial, right? Tessa was a candidate because she was having so many seizures, <laughs> um, but not everybody is going to be a candidate for every trial. And then, B, figuring out... Um, you know, how are we going to tell if this helps, right? Figuring out, you know, if we start this medication, what are we looking for to say, yes, Epidiolex is a medication that works for Tessa. Um, and that just involves a lot of doctor's appointments with the, with the clinical trial team before you even start the trial. Now you're in the trial and what is expected of you? What would you want other parents to know going into that situation? I think that you need to talk to your doctor and ask lots of questions. Not every clinical trial is made the same, right? So you want to know, like, what is the ask? Like, for us, this was a pretty easy trial because it was pretty local, right? We could travel by car. Um, there wasn't a lot of uh, expense to it. We didn't have to, you know, I can't remember if we paid for parking, but that would have been about the level, you know, gas and parking were about the level of expense for this trial. And it wasn't a, a concern for me at the time is all I can say. But those are questions like every family is going to have something um, different for them that they need to feel comfortable asking, you know, they need to feel comfortable saying, Hey, I can't, you know, afford to do X, Y, and Z. Are there ways to get around this, um, speed bump, you know, so that my child can still participate with the Epidiolex trial. Did you know for sure that she was receiving the Epidiolex or was there a group that was getting the placebo? We knew that she was receiving it. I was I was trying to think back to whether there was a placebo group in this trial. And, and again, I'm going to have to claim like the mommy brain blur. But we I remember going into it that we knew that she was receiving the medication because that's another um, thing that really influences parents' decisions about whether or not to participate. Like, had we known that there was only a 30% chance that she would receive the medication and we were juggling, you know, Colton and whatever else, it might have been a different decision to, for us. And so I remember knowing that she would get the drug. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. An estimated 3.4 million Americans and 65 million people worldwide currently live with epilepsy. For more than 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has funded cutting-edge, patient-focused research. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. The results from the Epi Epidiolex trial uh, what were they for Tessa? Did the medicine work for her? And, and how did that work once you had that gauge? It did not work for her. It did not work for her at all. We saw zero improvement. And I think that's one of the hard parts about a clinical trial. You know, we, we've tried 
dozens of medications and we, you know, we've had things fail. In fact, everything has pretty much failed for us. So, you know, at, at this point in her life or whatever. Um, and so the failure at, you know, the failure should not have been a surprise, but the failure feels more disappointing because I think there's more, um, hype and build up when it's a clinical trial. You have to kind of put on your armor and rally your strength in order to have the the bravery to enter the clinical trial and be a part of something that's maybe a little more stringent and complicated. And so when it doesn't work out, it it feels extra devastating. So that was your first experience with a pharmaceutical trial, but it was not your last. Tell us about the next trial that you did. And for this one, both children were involved, correct? Yeah. So um, actually during the Epidiolex trial is when we received that genetic diagnosis for Tessa and Colton. So Tessa entered the trial or, you know, we started our Epidiolex journey. Colton wasn't born when we actually started the trial. Colton was born, but neither child had a, a genetic diagnosis yet. And it was during the trial that we received that genetic diagnosis. And so, um, you know, the next question is always, is there something to do about it, right? Like, okay, we have this information, but what do we do? And and it turned out in our case, um, our neurologist Brenda Porter and Matthew Bainbridge, who had found these gene mutations in my kids, they thought that there there were some things to try, and that was exciting to have like new potential therapeutic avenues to move down. Just because we had we had largely exhausted that you know epilepsy space of things to try, um, and so there is a company called Ultragenics and they had a um, medication called triheptanoin, um, but it was not FDA approved for this indication. I'm not even sure it was FDA approved for any indication yet, although it is now. Um, and so we were able to work together with Matthew, Brenda, the FDA and Ultragenics um, and another doctor named Brett Graham from Baylor. And they were able to get this teeny tiny trial off the ground. Um, and, uh, the term that was floating around at the time um, was compassionate care use of the drug. And so um, the idea behind uh, compassionate care use is that you have a severe, probably life-threatening disorder, um, no FDA-approved treatment available for it, and the risks outweigh, or the, sorry, the benefits outweigh the risks in terms of trying um, a product that is not yet FDA-approved. And so you get them involved in this study, and this one is unfortunately not in your home state. Tell us what that process was like and, and how you chose to participate in it and what, if any, costs were covered. Absolutely. So um, this is obviously a very different trial because it's so small, right? There were, um, because this was such a newly discovered disease, there were literally only a handful of patients who had also been diagnosed and two of them were living in my house, right? So, um, you know, the, the trial by definition could not be large because the patient population was so small. And this is popping up more and more now that you know, there are trials that are just for one person, right? They call them N of one trials. And, and so the, the idea or the, um, the number of people in a clinical trial is really changing as more precision medications, like medications specifically targeted to a specific type of epilepsy or type of disease um, are developed. And so in our case, um, you know, I had two patients, but there were patients elsewhere too, and we wanted them to be able to participate too. And so um, the trial site that was chosen was in Texas. Um, we were able to have uh, Brenda Porter at Stanford 
um, be like a, an additional trial site for a portion of the trial, but the main trial site was in Texas, which meant that every few months we had, I had to fly with Tessa and Colton from California to Texas. And again, it was similar to like what we had been through with the Epidiolex trial in the sense of you do EEGs and blood tests, you know, you figure out your baseline. Um, there was a lot of paperwork behind the scenes, even in just um, figuring out what the protocol would look like for the clinical trial, right? Um, but once that protocol is in place, you then put it to work. And that's really where the families come into play um, because they have to do all the tests and be a part of all, all the things that were written down in the protocol. Um, and so we also have to pick up the medication from, from Texas. And so actually, that's a funny story that I'll tell quickly. So it turns out that triheptanoin is an oil. And um, you have to remember that I have two kids participating in this trial and that Texas is really far from California. And so very kindly in the protocol, we were allowed to get like maybe three months of medication at a time, right? So three months of medication times two kids times, you know, an oil. And um, it turned out, when I went to the pharmacy that I was picking up gallons of oil, like it was really gallons and gallons of this medication. Right. And I'm thinking, how am I going to get this on a plane? Like, I'm pretty sure that they're going to be like, uh, uh, that goes past your four ounce liquid limit or whatever it is. Right. And so, um, you know, those are the type of things that you don't think about heading into a trial that become very, very real for families. Um, so I ended up having to go to FedEx and FedEx the medication back to California, which was a expensive. And, you know, we hadn't even thought about it when we were talking about the protocol. I didn't have time to think about whether that would be an expense that was covered or anything like that. But I can tell you a tiny bit more about um, what the clinical trial looked like um, in the off months. It was very, I would call this like the epitome of being patient-centric, um, adding in a second site at Stanford so that my family um, could have the option of going to Texas or Stanford for those in-between visits when they really just needed a neurology clinic appointment and um, some blood work done. Um, and so that saved us a lot of travel, you know, traveling half as much as we might have otherwise had to. Um, and then the other families who were in Texas could obviously just go to Texas each time. So these are really catered, like, like these are very specific and tailored um, uh, trials when, when they're precision therapy trials. And now I want to talk about this next trial that is coming up because I think it sounds equally promising and terrifying. And I, I just want you to, to share because I think that this is the direction that a lot of genetic epilepsies may be trending toward. So unfortunately, that triheptanoin trial that we talked about did not work in my children. Um, neither one of them showed an improvement. And in fact, some of the other kids um, in the trial didn't seem to show improvement either. And so we, I, I want to be really, I want to thank Ultragenics for giving us the shot to, to try the medication because that does not happen every time. Like the, the drug company is not always on board, you know, and so I am, I have nothing but gratitude for being able to have, you know, been a part of that trial. And, um, but unfortunately it didn't work uh, for my children. And so we really had to take a step back and say, okay, <laughs> I've still got, you know, my daughter seizing hundreds of times a day, like this doesn't look good. We, we know some things, we know that, um, you know, we have a genetic diagnosis, like where, where is the science in this space? And right now there are really a lot of success stories in uh, gene therapy. It was sort of on the cusp for 20 plus years and now, you know, boom, we're hearing some exciting stories, um, but it's still really new, which makes it scary and unknown and the brain you know, we're talking about epilepsy trials here and the brain is, you know, the final frontier in terms of um, 
in terms of trying to change the trajectory of, of someone's health and life. And so, um, you know, we we decided let's get our patient population organized because we suddenly had, you know, hundreds of kids that we're talking about. You know, it's not just a, a hand. It's not just the kids in my house. There are more and more kids being diagnosed with this specific uh, genetic epilepsy, SLC13A5. Um, and so we started a nonprofit organization just to try to accelerate the development of treatments um, for this specific epilepsy. And our nonprofit is called Test Research Foundation, and we're teeny tiny and very grateful, you know, for Cure Epilepsy that can sort of triage and connect families with ours if they have this specific form of um, epilepsy so that we can share, you know, some of the things that we've tried, some of the potential clinical trials and some of the things that are on the horizon. And for us, um, I think that there are still several things on the horizon. I think there's lots of reason for hope. And so... Um, you know, the, the trial that I think you're hinting at is a gene therapy trial. And what a gene therapy is, is it takes a, um, what they call a vector, which think of it like a USB port or a, uh, like a flash drive or like a, a truck. It delivers, you use that truck to deliver a healthy copy of the gene um, into a person who has that typo, right? It's an attempt to really address the underlying problem and it's called gene replacement therapy. And I think in that title, you can um, kind of understand what the end goal is. Um, and so we, as a nonprofit, started to work with an academic researcher. Her name is Rachel Bailey, and she's amazing. Um, and she developed a gene therapy for this type of epilepsy. And now there's a drug company called Tasha um, that is helping us to push this gene therapy into clinical trials. So, um, you know, it's still early days, but we're going to have to talk like couple years from now, we'll have to have our, uh, we'll have to talk again about, you know, whether that trial got off the ground, what it looked like and, and what the outcome was, but that's exciting for us. And I think there's more potentials for clinical trials. Um, I mean, to me, um, clinical trials are the beginnings of potential cures. And so there's a lot of hope and a lot of reason to have these clinical trials, but for families like mine, um, who, you know, are, kind of growing up with the science, it's not a fun journey. I, I wish that um, I wish that my children had an easier path in life. And, um, you know, I'm trying to, I'm hoping that some of these clinical trials will help them have more opportunities and better health and an easier lifestyle. What advice do you have for families who are trying to find out what research is being done for their child's specific kind of epilepsy or their genetic diagnosis? Yeah, I think the first step is making sure that you have the right healthcare team. So there are some key players here, right? Where, um, you know, you'll have like your, if you have a child, you'll have like a pediatrician. But when you have something like a severe epilepsy, you need to um, go a few steps farther in terms of building and growing your healthcare team. And so uh, with seizures, you should have a neurologist involved. And, and specifically, you probably want an epileptologist. So you want a doctor who um, is used to seeing seizures and using these seizure medications and, and kind of has their finger on the pulse of epilepsy genetics or clinical trials or some of these things that may um, be useful to families. And, you know, I obviously have a, a bias towards the genetic side of things because that's been my experience, but they would also know the broader path of, of other potential trials for, you know, your family or your child, hopefully. And sometimes there are no trials and, and that is really hard too, right? Like some of us, I, I've been in that position with, um, with Tessa, where you know you go, you have all the right team players. So you have the epileptologist, you know, you have the geneticist, you have the whole healthcare team. 
but you know, for a long time there, we had no genetic diagnosis and no clinical trials to try. And so it's circling back. Like obviously there's progress being made and things are changing. And so I think that for families, build that healthcare team and then make sure you check back in with them. You know, um, with genetics, it's like you think you've had every genetic test under the sun, but three years from now, there's twice as many genetic tests that are available, or they just know more about the results. And so you have to circle back and you have to ask questions and you have to say, you know, I know we've had this conversation 10 times, but what has changed since the last time we had this conversation? Um, and just see what's out there. There's a site called clinicaltrials.gov um, that lists available clinical trials and doctors often look at that. And there's no reason that parents can't, you know, Google that too. Um, and then I think connecting with Cure Epilepsy, uh, you know, an epilepsy organization is a really important piece of the puzzle. Um, Cure has obviously done amazing things in terms of research funded and, and making progress on the um, sort of behind the scenes work. But they also are a fantastic organization for tiny little organizations like ours, right? So they can help connect uh, families with whatever resources are out there, right? They're a good um, place to say, okay, I, we just found this out, like, you know, who who can possibly know the specifics um, on this type of epilepsy. And it may be cure epilepsy or it may be, you know, another tiny little group. You are a rock star and amazing. And I am just absolutely in awe of you. And I, I think that this information is going to just be so ludicrously helpful to families out there. So thank you. Thank you for, for chatting with us, for sharing your um, wealth of information, and I am crossing fingers and toes that um, the next clinical trial is the one that finds the answers for your kiddos. Well, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk with you, and um, yeah, I hope families can feel empowered. Thank you, Kim, for your insights on clinical trials and for your tenacity in pursuing new treatment options, not just for your own children, but for all those who suffer from uncontrolled seizures. As we wrap up our Seizing Life series on the drug development process, we hope you have found it both informative and encouraging. The development of new drugs presents the best hope for the 3.4 million Americans and the 65 million people worldwide who are living with epilepsy. For over 20 years, Cure Epilepsy has been focused on funding research that will lead to the development of new epilepsy drugs and treatments. We have made significant progress, but we must continue to fund patient-focused research that will lead us to our goal of a world without epilepsy. To help us reach that goal, please visit cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Your support and generosity are greatly appreciated. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CURE. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.